Okay, we're going to cover some material about discerning spirits. Let me read a little bit and then we'll pray. Give you a little introduction. In 2007, at a Faith at Risk conference on a Sunday morning, I shared this material. I've since updated it, looked more carefully at the passages and at the Greek, and decided to teach it here because it's certainly apropos to our understanding of means of grace. Means of grace are defined in the scripture as how the Holy Spirit is at work in the church. And it's our uh, need and responsibility to be able to discern what is and is not a work of the Spirit. This was the key issue during the Reformation. Luther has a lot to say. I have a little Luther. We'll see if we use it or not. But it's how the church is defined. It's how, it's how the church's practices are defined. It's how we recognize false prophets and reject their message. And if we do this biblically, the discerning of spirits, and if it was well known and well done across America, anyhow, most of these TV preachers will go out of business because everyone would immediately see they're not they're talking about the Holy Spirit, but they're not motivated or anointed as they claim by the Holy Spirit. So the, the passage that I have here will hit eventually this week or next more thoroughly, but it says the spirit of truth, he will bear witness of me in a nutshell. That's the answer right there. The Holy Spirit causes Christ to be preached, witnessed about, and glorified. That's how we discern. That's it. And we'll see that. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that your spirit comes to us through the word. And may we explain this forthrightly, clearly, in an understandable manner for all, so that your church might be edified. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we shall proceed. I'm going to start with 1 John 4, 1 and 2, probably the most important section, although it's all important. But here is our command and clue about how to discern spirits. 1 John 4, 1 and 2. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, let me unpack this a little bit. First of all, when we're discerning spirits, it isn't the case that we actually see the demons floating around out here. Some people claim they do, but you don't want to do that. It's God's mercy that we can't do that. And the people who try to invoke some sort of a process whereby they see, hear, or gain manifestations from the spirits are seriously mistaken. I get emails from people about that weekly, and I'm not overstating that because of some articles I wrote. They interact with spirits, and they want to know if I can give them some advice about how to better do that. And I say, don't. Don't do it. You don't want to do this. You don't want to see the spirits, hear the spirits, and become some sort of shaman who mediates between the spirits and human beings. And so that's not what this is saying. Look at it. Do not believe every spirit. Well, how do you know there's a spirit? But test the spirits. How do you know what they are? 
to see whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone into the world. It's the prophets that are speaking from a spiritual source. So it's coming to us through a human being, not directly from a spirit. So when we test the spirits, we're testing the prophets. And those who claim to speak for God are many. And we can apply the tests that I'm going to teach you this week and next and have no reason whatsoever to be deceived about this. And so this is not just channeling or voices from yonder or from the spirit world, but this is flesh and blood people speaking, and that's where we do our discernment. Remember uh, the situation in uh, Kings where the prophets were false prophets and they had a lying spirit in their mouth? Well, the king, Ahab, who had all these prophets said, go, you're going to prevail. He wasn't seeing spirits. He was just seeing men speaking supposedly for God, but only Micaiah told the truth. So it's discerning the message of humans, not directly seeing into the spirit world. All right? By this, you know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses to the that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, this has come in the flesh is about the incarnation. And referenced earlier in 1 John in chapter 1. I think I preached on that last week. Well, whatever. I know I've preached on it. The tangibility of the coming of Christ. But see, if you have a spirit Jesus floating around the cosmos, then you can have many Christs. The Christ which we confess is the one who came in the flesh. This includes his pre-existence, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his miracles, his death on the cross, his resurrection on the third day, his appearances to many witnesses, his bodily ascension into heaven, this is tangible. Okay, so these people who are saying, here's the Christ, here's the Christ, they're looking into the spirit world. They don't have a real Christ who bodily ascended to heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father and ever lives to make intercession for us. They have their own Christ. There's right there. That much would be enough. But people don't discern it. I'm thinking I need to give you a good reason why you should listen to me. Let me give you an illustration right on the front end of this. I'm not saying you're not listening. I just want you to see the, how important this is. In the late 80s, early 90s, there was a guy going around America starting revivals called the Laughing Revival. And the guy was Rodney Howard Brown. Well, a lady that I knew back then, who sometimes came to our church when we were on 24th and Nicollet, her friends said, you got to go to this, hear this guy. This is the great move of God. This is a move of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't go, you're going to miss out on it. So she went all the way to wherever it was, Tulsa, Oklahoma, wherever they're having a meeting, was there for most of a week. They had meeting night after night after night. People were laughing. People were quacking like ducks and clucking like chickens and doing bizarre behavior and falling out of their seats laughing. And this was supposedly the great work of the Spirit. So she came back, and I did kind of a debriefing. And I said, well... Was that really a work of the Spirit? She says, I'm not sure. It didn't seem right. I said, well, let me ask you a question. During the whole, I think it was five days worth of meetings every night, I said, did you ever hear Christ preached? In other words, somebody with a microphone to the people preached about the personal work of Christ, God's plan of salvation, and so on. No, I never heard that. 
Okay, so here they're claiming a great, powerful work of the Spirit, the new revival, and Christ is not preached. We use this. We discern the false prophet. We say this is false. It's not from God. It's certainly not a work of the Holy Spirit, and we're done with it. And you get to keep your money and not buy any more airplane tickets. <laughs> Do you see that it's practical? Now, sometimes it gets a little more complicated because they do preach Christ, but they have a different Christ. We were talking about that a little bit before the Sunday school began. Let me go to the next slide. And okay, so carrying on here in 1 John 4, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus, now this is the Jesus Christ who came in the flesh mentioned in verse 2, is not from God. You know, a lot of Christian theology, my dear brothers and sisters, isn't hard to understand. It's not complicated. You don't need to go to advanced degrees. It just tells us. But yet we're deceived. Millions upon millions of dollars of go to publishing books that are failing the test. And that's not an exaggeration. Not confessing Christ. You got an audience, you got a pulpit, you can't just bring yourself to preach Christ. What's wrong with this picture? A lot. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, Christos means anointed. The Messiah from the Old Testament is the anointed one. And so when we preach Christ, we preach that he is the anointed one. Now, it's important to know this. He's the anointed one. We all have an anointing. I think I just preached on that, too. But these false prophets will claim to be the anointed man of God. That they have some special anointing beyond their brethren. According to Hebrews, that's only Christ. So those people who claim to be anointed ones beyond an ordinary Christian are antichrists. It's not hard. We just don't like it, maybe. So many people think, oh, you're so harsh. You can't. How can you say that? Well, I didn't say it. The scripture did. Claiming to have some grand anointing of the spirit, but you don't proclaim Christ. You're an antichrist of which you have heard is coming and is now already in the world. They are from the world. The spirit Christ, who is not tangible, who shows up in various forms of false incarnations, people who claim to be the Christ, who started cults, they're from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. So there you have it. There's a discerning of spirits. It's not even hard. It's not even difficult. God didn't make this hard and difficult. We can't see spirits, and if we try to do this subjectively, I, I get, not recently, but in years past, when, with all the writing I've done and radio material, I get calls or emails from people and they say, well, I have the gift of discernment. Okay. So I went to the meeting and something didn't seem right. That's not the gift of discernment. Me feeling like something didn't seem right may have turned out to be accurate. Something wasn't right. But feeling like something isn't right is not discernment. That's not what that term means. We're talking about discerning spirits so we know the spirit is from God and it isn't. We don't see their shape. We don't hear their voices. We don't sense what kind of a spirit might be floating through the room. We're protected from all of that by God's grace. But we can discern the spirits based on this test that I'm going to teach today and next week. It's so objective, it's so ubiquitous in the scripture that I don't know how you miss it. Is Christ 
consistently and forthrightly preached. And if you go to a meeting where Christ is preached and the soul is reign supreme and you just don't feel right, you, you wonder if there's something wrong with you. You should rejoice when you hear Christ preached, even from people that you normally wouldn't get along with. I think we do. Uh, you, you know, everybody's got their own story, but I've been to places where I wouldn't have expected that at a funeral or whatever. And here comes a preacher confessing Christ. I rejoice. Why wouldn't you rejoice? We'll see that as we go along. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Very important. This one's a little more difficult, but I think when we get to the context and the real issues, we'll see that this very much reinforces what I was just saying. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And the word for can is dunamai, means they don't have the power or ability to say that. Now that raises a lot of questions because there are known false groups and teachers who say Jesus is Lord all the time. One well-known false prophet has a big banner over his head when he's preaching Jesus is Lord. Okay? And so therefore we might think, aha, it's a true work of the Spirit. But hold on. You could have the Mormon Jesus... You could have uh, the Jesus of the Kenosis doctrine who lost his divinity. This one well-known Jesus as Lord preacher teaches that Jesus lost his divinity and went to hell. We talked about that. Then that is a denial of the deity of Christ because deity means eternal non-contingent existence. And so, yes, and so therefore... If it's lost and gained, there's contingency and you don't have true deity, so they're denying the deity of Christ. They say Jesus is Lord and then blaspheme him. So uttering the words isn't enough. It's the preaching of the true doctrine of Christ. Rich, make sure you speak right into it. How is this? I um, think it's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's obvious. The Mormon Jesus is obvious. I mean, that's way, way false. But what about the real subtle Jesus who's not right? The Jesus in the evangelical church, which is so prevalent that he's not sovereign. Um, you know, it, it takes a work of your own flesh or the work of your own will to, to enact salvation. He's not that powerful. You have to do it through your own free will. Would that be a false Jesus? Well, somebody may have an accurate Christology and an inaccurate soteriology. I think we'd have to account for that possibility. And here's another point. Thank you, though. That, that really gives me going in my mind here. There are those who can accurately tell you the doctrine of Christ, but if you put them in, a, in front of a crowd, they'll never preach it because they fear man. I think Rick Warren is that way. I asked him to preach Christ. He won't do it. He will if he has a mailing list, for instance, of pastors. He'll, I, I got a little video from him where he preaches Christ. It's in a very deep in his website. His entourage will say, oh, yeah, he believes in the Orthodox doctrine of Christ. But you put him in a pulpit and he wouldn't say a word about it. Okay, that's a, that's a valid point. What's that all about? Are you fearing man? Are you not willing to confess Christ before men? Well, no, maybe, maybe not. But your ministry philosophy says you have to appeal to people as they are. And people as they are don't want to hear about Christ. Okay, so he preaches to the general public out there, but doesn't preach Christ. So I, I judge that to be false. 
Now, let's look at this. So it can't just mean utter a word. There's a question about why would a Christian in a Christian assembly say Jesus is accursed? But it's interesting. Now, this is a little later in church history. But when you read about the early Christian church after the apostles and their run-ins with Rome, where Christians were executed for being Christians, there's some documents from that time that I studied when I was in seminary that we were required. It was very interesting. There's this Pliny the Younger, I think, was one of them. Because when Christianity became a little bigger and became seen as a separate entity from Judaism and was a threat to the polytheism of Rome, they wanted to know what to do with these Christians. And so they wanted to execute Christians, but they didn't want to get people that were just innocent bystanders that may have been attracted to a Christian meeting but weren't really Christian. And so they came up with a litmus test to see who's a Christian. And one of the things that this guy figured out was that one thing Christians won't do is curse Christ. And the other thing they won't do is worship idols. So what they did in order to find out if somebody was a true Christian was threaten them with death unless they cursed Christ, burn incense to the gods, and swear by the genius of Caesar. Okay? And the Romans were convinced that no true Christian would curse Christ. Isn't that interesting? And they wouldn't, so they went to various forms of execution before they would curse Christ, but they would confess him as Lord. Now, I have a bunch of stuff from Gordon Fee on this. It is a difficult passage. Let me give you his conclusion. In final analysis, therefore, says Gordon Fee, it seems more likely that it's either hypothetical perhaps serving as an analogy to their pagan past, whose point is its shock value, or else it is something that some of them had actually experienced in their pagan past. So the confession of Christ, he says, implied a belief in the resurrection. He says this became the earliest Christian confession, tied in particular to Jesus's having been raised from the dead, and having become the exalted one. So here was a very early Christian confession, Jesus is Lord, and applied the fa- implied the facts of his incarnation. And that Jesus is accursed will be anathema to any Christian. And it may have been something that the pagans were doing. It was certainly found in some J- Jewish literature a little bit later. And it's something that the Romans use as a litmus test. So we see again, how do we know that someone is speaking by the Spirit of God? The litmus test is their confession of Christ. Don't be fooled. I didn't recant one thing I said in my book about the purpose-driven movement. It doesn't matter to me that Rick Warren has a file cabinet somewhere that confesses Christ. If he won't do it in front of kings and dignitaries and royalty or an ordinary people coming to church, if he won't do it, he fails the test. I'll go ahead, Brian. We see that same litmus test today in uh, Muslim-run uh, countries where uh, villages of Christians are, are uh, uh, mass-executed because they won't... Uh, put their faith to to Allah, and we're yeah, going to see they, that they, same. They, they, I was going to say we're going to see that same litmus test yep. into the future as the Antichrist comes into the scene. Yeah, and so the whole issue is the confession of Christ. But can't you see the power and the opportunity that we have if we're willing to step forward in this milieu of unbelief and compromise? And to preach Christ without shame or embarrassment, without compromise, how powerful of a work of the Holy Spirit that really is. 
can you see why the means of grace we've been talking about are, are explaining how the Holy Spirit works in the church? Because it's all about Christ. They gathered together under the doctrine of Christ. Let's go to the book of Revelation. Revelation 19.10. And I fell at his feet. Now, this was an angel that appeared here in Revelation 19.10. I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Eric and I talked this over this week. It came to the conclusion this really has to be an objective genitive. It's not the testimony, although certainly ultimately the willingness to do it would come from Jesus, but Jesus is the object of our testimony. He's the object of worship. So in uh, this case, John uh, mistakenly was going to worship this angel. And the angel says, no, worship God. And clearly that the person of God is revealed in Christ, who is the son from all eternity, second person of the Trinity, and is a legitimate object of worship. So testimony about Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit, and that is who inspires all prophecy. Yes, we can discern, my dear brothers and sisters. We don't need to be deceived. We can discern. And it's not even complicated. Oh, that we would just do it and not allow these false prophets to ravage the church. Who's to be worshipped? Not the angel, but Christ. And so therefore, the spirit of prophecy is the confession or the preaching or the testimony, maturion, of Jesus. Same idea again. Don't get overwhelmed because we haven't even hardly got started here. (laughs) We'll find that there's really nothing else. This is it. This is a slam dunk theologically, if there is such a thing. This is it. 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicated as he, that is the Holy Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. We learn some things here. Prophecy is ultimately about Christ, Christos, Messiah, the promised one. The one that all the prophets were looking for, including Habakkuk. The word for made careful search, exeteo, is a strong word used in the Septuagint for seeking the lost sheep or seeking God. So they were carefully seeking and searching salvation that would come through Messiah. They prophesied about it and then looked and sought to see. Eric and I were just doing radio on Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. There was this time prophesied, particularly in Daniel, that Messiah would come. And and so they were searching for this. Notice it says the grace that would come. When we teach means of grace, and I know many of you have gotten some really good feedback, and I appreciate that so much. Many say, if this is so important, how come we never hear about it? How come my Christian family or friends have never heard of it? How come it's not taught in the Bible college and seminaries? Well, because we pushed Christ off the agenda. 
means of grace are about the grace that comes to us through Messiah and how we gather together to study the apostles' teaching to make implications and applications, to fellowship, as it says in 1 John 1, 1 through 3, to pray because we have access to the throne of grace where, where Messiah is, to have baptism, which reminds us that we died to this world and we live for Christ, and to have the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of his death until he comes, which reminds us of the promise of God. And thus, the means of grace are all about testifying of Christ. Boy, Luther waxed eloquent on this. I got to tell you, some of his best material. And his claim, and that which became the way to define the church, if Rome wasn't the church, then what is, was that the Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. Not some other way, not through councils and bishops and popes and monks and orders and, and, and tradition and all these things, but the Holy Spirit testifies of Christ and the ministry of the church is about Christ. And Luther believed, and I have some quotations I'll share with you a little bit, that baptism and the Lord's Supper were the visible word by which Christ comes to us by his spirit. And that much I can understand. I, you know, we had this discussion of baptismal regeneration, and we don't agree with that. But I do believe that the Holy Spirit does come to us through the word. So grace would come to you. How does MacArthur's ministry is called grace to you? How does grace come to us? Through Messiah, who we proclaim and testify about and preach. So even the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You can see that obviously in Isaiah chapter 53. I've preached on that. Some more from Peter, 2 Peter 1, 2021. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. First of all, you should know this. No prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation because no prophecy were ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's bring out those implications. Let's pay attention. The Holy Spirit testifies of Christ, right? The Holy Spirit was upon the prophets. The prophets testified of Christ, the true prophets. So there we have how we have scripture. The whole of the book, according to Hebrews, Jesus said, is about him. The volume of the book is written of me. And so the Old Testament prophets prophesied of Christ. Now, there is an exegetical and interpretive issue with this verse. It has to do with this word interpretation. And I used the Holman Christian Standard Bible after I did a bunch of study because I thought it was the best. And after careful study, I'm going to quote Schreiner. He says, despite the suggestions by some exegetes, the term almost certainly refers to interpretation. Then he references Mark 4.34. In a version of the Septuagint translated by Aquila, both the noun and the verb are used of Joseph interpreting dreams. And then he has cross-references for that. Peter says uh, Schreiner was likely attacking the opponents, arguing that they interpreted prophecy to support their own views. In so doing, they resist the proper, proper interpretation given by the apostles. 
The apostles preached Christ. The apostles received the truth from the Lord, and they are spokespersons for God, and they properly interpreted the Old Testament. The apostles did. Peter makes that clear if you go on in Second Peter. Okay, so what you have in modern or postmodern thinking, which I've said all along is an oxymoron, postmodern thinking, it implies there's actual thinking there, is this false notion that the reader determines the meaning. And I believe that this verse refutes that. Okay? The reader doesn't determine the meaning. The Holy Spirit-inspired authors do. And the apostles... Holy Spirit-inspired apostles, the real ones, the biblical ones, gave us the true meaning of the Old Testament scriptures. Eric, do you have anything you want to say about that? Make sure the green light is on. Yeah, that's, that's a great passage to refute postmodernism. Further proof, you gave great proof from Schreiner there that interpretation, the big debate is, is interpretation rendered interpretation or uh, what's the other version say, Bob? It's um, that, that basically that the Scripture comes. It either has to do with the origin of Scripture or how right. you interpret Scripture. Exactly. Well, further proof that it's about interpretation is notice in Second uh, Peter 2, it, verse 1, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers. And so what these false teachers were denying was the proper interpretation of Scripture. Peter and the apostles were claiming that the parousia, the coming of the Lord, was going to happen. The false teachers were saying, no, it's not going to happen. And proof that Peter and the apostles were right, as Bob was mentioning, is they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. You can read that in Second Peter exactly. 1.16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitness of, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Then he goes on to say... For when we rece- he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice, the voice born to him by the maj- majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now that, there we go. That was heard from the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, that's from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 declares what Messiah is going to reign over the world. Amen. Well, is he reigning over the world at that time? No. Therefore, Peter and the apostles knew that he had to return a second time. Therefore, we have the apostolic interpretation verified. But, you know, the key point there, I think, too, is here the apostles had experiences given by God to verify interpretation. Yeah, they were chosen to be the recipients and transmitters of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now you have people today who are trying to claim experiences, and they're contradicting the apostles, unfortunately. Thank you, Eric. Very good argument. just to reinforce what you just said, let me read some more from Schreiner. His commentary is from the New American Commentary. It's fantastic. If you've got just enough money to buy one commentary on Peter and Jude, one and two Peter and Jude, none is better that I've found than Thomas Schreiner. He says this, Peter's argument then is that the readers must pay attention to the prophetic word as it is interpreted by the apostles. They knew they were there at the Mount of Transfiguration where the Father said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He's the one Moses, by the way, mentioned in Deuteronomy 18. For the Old Testament prophet, prophecies, back to Schreiner now, are not a matter of personal interpretation, but have been authoritatively interpreted by the apostles. So we have a once for all faith, once for all, or the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The apostles had it right. Now, if the reader determines the meaning, then you have this thing stood on its head. And so you hear people say, well, it means this to me. Or, they, or you're telling them something, and they say, oh, that's your truth. As if there is no the truth, there's only my truth and your truth, and they don't have to agree. We'll just, well, then you, the whole idea of truth becomes vacuous. 
Let's go on. 2 Peter 2, 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. And so, again, please see this. The redundancy is startling and it's profound and we need to learn from it. It's all about confessing Christ or denying him. And the work of the Spirit is to confess Christ. The work of the Spirit is to testify of him. Thus we know the work of the Spirit. Yes, uh, make sure, by the way, everyone, we were having trouble with the recording. I found out it was how we hold the mic because the mic's working right there. Right there, yeah. Comment on where it says, even denying the master who bought them, that makes it sound like they are redeemed, but yet they're saying it's all the same that's brought upon them. Yes, I thought about that. And so being how you asked, I'll go there. People, we use this verse to prove that you can lose your salvation. But as you know, the Bible contains many warnings against apostasy. Now, when the gathered church is considered in the New Testament, the things that are true about the church are taken for granted. In other words... When Paul addressed the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he told them to guard the flock. One good reason for doing so was they were purchased with his blood. Right? Now, does that mean there are any false prophets or false teachers in Ephesus? Probably there were. But they were considered bought by the blood because they were part of the church. And they'll remain considered that until their leaving would prove otherwise. They went out from us because they were not of us. Unless and until that happens, this serves as a warning. You say you're a Christian, and in which case you're bought by the blood, but if you deny the master, that's apostasy. And you should fear it. I don't think that this settles theological disputes about limited atonement, eternal security. It's telling us more about the essence of true and false prophecy. All right? Eric has something. Make sure the green light's on and speak into the mic. Yeah, in uh, context, too, later on, Bob, in Second Peter 2.22, uh, Peter gives this proverb. He says, the dog returns to its own vomit, mm-hmm. and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It's, oh, there, there's Christy. So the point is the animal acts like they really are. So, but what Bob is pointing out is there's phenomenological language. We don't, phenomenon means the way it appears. It appears that these people, they're in the ranks, but in reality over time, they were really never of us, so they go out from us. And so it's like a dog that goes back to its vomit. It's being a dog. They were really always a dog. Remember, a dog is an unclean animal in the Jewish mind, a pig as well. The pig just goes back to do what it always has. So that there shows that, no, if you really do end up denying Christ, it's because you're really a dog. You're really a, a pig. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Eric. Very, very helpful. And not to, I don't want to get off the track here, but church discipline is how this gets sorted out. They either just leave of their own and never even want to come back, Because you don't assume you know somebody's not really a Christian had they at one point confessed Christ. And they, like in Matthew 18, you go find that lost sheep. You you assume he's a lost sheep until he says, no, I don't want to come back. I don't want to hear any more about Christ in the gospel. Leave me alone. Well, then they're denying the master and they're apostate and they're not Christian. But we don't jump to that conclusion right away, do we? We're always wanting to bring back the lost sheep. And that's the way the Lord wants it. 
Make sure the green light's on and speak right into the mic. Um, this reminds me of Jesus' um, own parable about the, the seed, how um, the seed was scattered and it went in all different places. But eventually, um, there was the real uh, crop was obvious at the end, but not the crop that was uh, went to the rocky places and the, or for whatever reason. Oh, didn't the, grow. yeah, the, se- yeah. the seed pair. There's a yeah. lot of parables about this, and so there's things we don't know. But what we don't know isn't theologically definitive. Whether Christ is confessed and someone's willing to live according to the teachings of Christ and his apostles is. Wouldn't the ultimate litmus test just be a love of the gospel truth? That is the test par excellence. It's the touchstone, the watershed. Don't pat somebody's bald head. (laughs) I know. Well, I think you get the idea, though. Do you notice the consistent theme about the confession of Christ? No one who is, is motivated by the Spirit says Jesus is accursed. Here it says false prophets even deny the Master. It's all about the confession of Christ. I see people do this, and when I call them on it, their followers get angry with me. People who claim Jesus lost his divinity, they're denying the Master whatever else you want to say about them. Now look at this particular passage. Here's how they deny the master, by going too far and not abiding in the teaching of Christ. 2 John 1, 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. But the one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So here we have another test having to do with the teaching of Christ. And I did some study on this one as well. Praago is the word too far here, and it means to go beyond, to go too far, to run ahead. Get this one, to be progressive. All right, anyone who claims there's progress beyond Christ is a false prophet. Okay, the faith once for all, for Peter, the faith once for all delivered to the saints has definite boundaries determined by Christ and his apostles. The idea that everything is going to somehow evolve in some sort of a Hegelian sense sense to some better future is the essence of liberalism both theological and otherwise and we don't believe that okay yes peter can you comment on the journey inward yes the journey inward very good point is another way to go too far and do not confess christ And as I did my research on mysticism and contemplative spirituality, I noticed that all of the popular teachers of mysticism teach a journey inward. Now, the way they do this is by using a passage in Luke, according to the King James translation, that says the kingdom of God is within you. And that, which is not what that means, but that's the one they use because it suits their purposes. And so if the kingdom of God is within you and you're indwelt by Christ, and they usually say that universally, then to find Christ and to meet God, you go down inside your own self. You go into silence and solitude and have a journey inward. Now, the problem is, it's a total denial of Jeremiah 17, where it says, the heart is deceitfully wicked, who can know it? 
Only God knows the heart. If we go into the silence and solitude and go inward, we're going to not meet Christ. We're going to meet wickedness. We're going to meet stuff that we don't even want to think about. Okay? And by going outside of ourselves to Christ, we find a forgiveness of sins. Anybody that goes on a journey inward and they find out that they, they find this pristine, perfect inner child, they're, they're liars. Okay, uh, Peter, one more. Just to follow up, then, isn't that really a form of self-righteousness? Yes, it's a form of going too far right here. Yes, Floyd. Hi, Bob. You compare that with the, the, the Jeremiah 17 passage with the regeneration. When you're born again, you're given a new a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. Okay, that's a good point. So let's say that after we're regenerated, which is true, then would it be a good idea to have a journey inward? And the point is, no, because the flesh and spirit are still real in opposition to one another. I'll preach to that in a couple of weeks. And Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. The great joy and power and victory that God's given us is to go to Christ at the throne of grace, who is the true heart knower. And it realizes our frame that we're but flesh, but our sins are forgiven. And that's why it was so important to tell people based on the authority of Christ that their sins are forgiven. And it's not true that a Christian is safe on a journey inward. What was the name of this one fellow whose books I read and quoted? He was a professional psychiatrist and wrote a lot of books that were popular with charismatics in the 70s. Um, anyhow, my, my, his name is, escapes me, but he had a lot of books that were very popular in the 70s. And even he who taught this said that the journey inward is exceedingly dangerous and some people go there and never come back. In other words, they actually lose their sanity. But, he said, it's worth it. I don't know about you, but uh, the idea of losing sanity, it's awful. Uh, no, it wasn't Foster. The name has escaped me. I have, if I had the Internet, I'd look up one of my articles on uh, Christian divination. I quoted the guy a lot. That's okay. Let's go on. we got only five minutes. So how far, my dear friends, how far is too far? Any answer? How far is too far? Beyond the teaching of Christ and his apostles. No. <laughs> Willard did the same thing. But this guy was from Notre Dame. He was a teacher there. And was Episcopalian priest. And... Uh, This guy's been off, he's been off the scene of history for some time. I will come back next week with that information. I, uh, I found a bunch of his books at the Bethel Library when I was doing research, and I think it's about a, as much of that kind of material as you're going to find anywhere. But he was highly popular. So too far is beyond Christ and his apostles, and not abiding in the teaching. See, Christian doctrine has boundaries. Not everything that claims to be Christian is. One of the things that's disturbing to me, we talked about this on, on the radio the last couple of weeks, not what's being broadcast now, but what, what we recorded, is I get so tired of the anti-scholastic bias in evangelicalism. How can we as Christians be wed to the idea that ignorance is bliss? And anybody that actually gets a theological education is suspect. And so I get that. I, I heard that from somebody that called on the phone. Well, me and my King James Bible, I don't need to know anything more than that. 
And then they want to teach systematic theology. They don't want to pay the tuition. They don't want to put their ideas out there for public scrutiny. They don't want to go to a place of higher learning where some very smart people can challenge them. They want to sit there in their own little world and say, I understand it because I'm me. And they're stuck in their own little world and not even knowing. And it's so frustrating because they're so passionate. No, you don't understand. You don't even understand the terminology. You don't understand the categories. You don't have an education. You're not qualified in this. Well, then you're an elitist. Well, I guess I wasted all those years of education. I could have just been a dummy and told you anything I felt like and I've been good enough. We wouldn't go to a doctor that had that kind of idea or whatever. Yes, Peter. The desert fathers that separated themselves, is that really a form of asceticism? Yes. So in reality, uh, they were trying to somehow gain uh, biblical knowledge or something through isolationism? Yeah, they wanted to escape from the, the corruption that was around them in the world or in the big cities. Okay? And in order to try to escape that, they went out into solitude. But I quoted from Jerome last week about that. Many of them found themselves losing their sanity. Means of grace are corporate. Silence and solitude in the wilderness is not a means of grace. Later, monasticism took this and made it systematized by having monasteries for people to go to, but it was based on the same idea of silence and solitude. Yes. So, kind of a modern analogy would be like uh, the lack of academic scholarship shutting their brain at the door, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, there is a general... Let me give you an example from somebody that I heard a quote from this when I was saying church history... Somebody from America, a very popular evangelist, said, I don't know any uh, biology, but I sure do love animals or flowers or whatever. And and went through this big litany and then said, and I don't know any theology, but I sure do love Jesus. Okay, that's sort of the anti-scholastic ignorance is bliss, don't tell me anything attitude. Now, here's the problem with that. This evangelist who claimed to know no theology but loved Jesus, he, if he has no theology, he can't tell you who Jesus is. If he has no doctrine of Christ, then he has no Jesus. And if he does, he has theology and he's being disingenuous. But they're always trying to dissuade the flock of God from study. Just be dumb and let the leaders tell you what to do. And I am going to fight that as long as I'm still here on this planet. Yes. Again, in follow-up, when approaching uh, Christians with that concept, and I use the term loosely there, uh, many times they'll cite an example of Jesus separating and isolating himself. Can you comment again on that? Yes. Jesus went out into solitude. Here's the, here's, very good, thank you, Peter. Here's the difference, and then we got to be done here. Jesus was sinless. He had spent all of eternity with the Father. And when he went out into the wilderness, he brought no sin with him. And he communed with the Father. You take a fallen sinner, even a saved one, and you do the same thing, and your sanity is going to be jeopardized because we bring our sin with us. I wish the name of that guy would come to me. I'll have to find some of those quotes. But the matter of fact, you can't assume that if you just sit in solitude. I know for a fact, I've had some really bad episodes in the last three years that thankfully I'm fully over now. Uh, You can't do that. Uh, Very few people can be stuck into utter solitude and keep their sanity. 
I quoted Jerome to that end last Sunday. To prescribe that as a means of grace is malpractice. We gather with one another, pray for one another to convince ourselves Christ really is the Lord and we really are serving him and he really has come in the flesh and we together serve him and admonish one another and care for one another and love one another and teach one another rather than be sitting out with the birds thinking we're getting closer to God. We're not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for helping us discern spirits. We know we need a lot of that help. May we love your word enough to submit to what it says and to encourage one another in it. In Jesus' holy name, amen.